my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. To stand in a store at a Whole Foods and do a demo in the freezer aisle and to have people walk right past you and not even want to stop and try it, and you're standing there so eager with your cute little T-shirt on and your, like, smile, pictures on the back of the box. For two and a half years, you've been working on that, and they don't want to try it. This is everything. I've risked everything for this. And then you realize, i got to change it all. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to this episode of Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing, where we dig into the stories of the people who create marketing and business successes through that special blend of analytics and creativity. Today, our guest is one of those folks, 
actually trained in both art and business. The creator and founder of the number one organic baby food company in the world, which you might know as Happy Baby, Shazi Vishram. Shazi was born in Canada, grew up in her parents' motel in Alabama. The family had two adjoining rooms, 123 and 125. She got a great education as a kid, went on to the Ivy League, studied art and history at Columbia, and later came back for an MBA. At first, it looked like she might go the math route through media buying, first at the media buying powerhouse, Horizon Media, and then her own shop. But she found her calling in healthy, organic baby food, eventually creating the leader in the category, but not without a lot of twists, turns, and pivots. She's won numerous well-deserved awards, and by some strange twist of fate, she's actually a childhood friend of our producer, Mangesh. Shazi also happens to be a great storyteller, so get ready for some good tales and useful insights. Welcome, Shazi. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to dig into all these stories, but first, I want to do you in 60 seconds. Okay, are you ready? Let's go. Do you prefer phone call or text? Text. Cats or dogs? Cats and dogs. Birmingham or Toronto? Birmingham, the ham. (laughs) New York or Connecticut? Mm, New York. Cup or cone? Cone. Yoga or running? Running. Room 123 or room 125? 125. (laughs) What's your favorite city? Prague. Secret talent? My memory. Greatest motivator? My kids. Smartest person you know? My dad. Childhood hero? My dad. Historical idol? Muhammad Ali. Quote to live by? Never give up. What book are you reading right now? I am not reading a book. Favorite vacation? Always Jamaica. Favorite happy baby product? Spinach mango pear. (laughs) What did you want to be when you were growing up? A neuroscientist. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? I'd love to learn how to fly. What topic can you talk about forever? Children's health. What was your first job? Popcorn girl at the movie theater in Birmingham. Did you get free popcorn? Too much. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's jump into the real stuff. Usually we start with a business story, but your childhood is so fascinating. I'd like to start there if you don't mind. I can't imagine a more inspiring immigrant story than what we're getting ready to talk about. Your dad grew up in Tanzania, moved to Pakistan, married your mom, who was a doctor there, and then moved to England, and then on to Toronto, where you were born. What was their dream? What were they chasing? They were chasing the idea of pure freedom and true opportunity. And I think they were thinking always, always, always about how do we do better so that our kids can have a better life than us. They both grew up with dirt floors. The motivation was almost inborn. If you live with a dirt floor under your feet and you've ever seen a place that doesn't have a dirt floor, you know there's something better, you know? And I think that's what it was. So they moved to London, Toronto. It's interesting that your mom was a doctor in Pakistan, right? So she was basically a doctor. Pakistan, as you know, is Muslim. She's a family of 10 brothers and sisters. She was, quote unquote, just a girl. Every year when she was in high school, they would say, we probably don't have enough money to send you to school this year. Only the boys would get to go. The last year when she was about to graduate, they said, I'm sorry, we don't have the money. You know, my grandfather sold rugs on his back. That's how they lived, hand to mouth. And she got a scholarship at this St. Mary's school in Pakistan. And the deal was they would pay for her to finish school, go to college, and to start 
as a nurse. And then after that, she would have to do two years of service as a nurse in a village of their choice. And they put her in this small village in Pakistan, and she worked in this clinic. There's something about her which is unique. She had these like healing hands. Everybody in the town would come to the clinic and only ask for her. After her two years was up, she said, let me start my own. So she started her own clinic. She was one of the first women in all of Pakistan to have her own medical practice. Everybody flocked to it because she had a reputation of having these sort of healing hands. The first time her family had furniture in their home, it's because she bought it for them. Wow. My mom and dad were arranged. They'd never met each other. All of a sudden, her family back in Hyderabad gets this letter from like a cousin who's looking for a match for this man who was like 40 and super charming and very handsome and hadn't yet settled down kind of thing. That family was my dad's family and they're in Tanzania. So they literally come to Pakistan and they're thinking, hey, we're going to get this woman to you know cook and clean for my dad. And they got my mom, which is really funny. Oops. (laughs) Because she's actually really terrible at cleaning. She's a really good cook, but I don't think she's ever actually washed a dish. My dad did all of that, ironically. But anyway, they see each other, and within 10 days, they're married. My dad said, my brother has a little shop in London, and he needs my help. So we're going to London. They packed all of her stuff And within like 12 days, she left all of that and moved to London to basically, when she got there, she didn't know, but she was basically going to be a maid. That's the beginning of her journey kind of in the West. Wow. And then they made the move to Toronto. What was that about? You know, I think everybody's dream is to move to America and Canada is kind of like... Almost America. Pretty close. Yeah. Yeah, Almost America. (laughs) Almost. And my dad had a sister in Canada. They moved to Toronto in 1970. 1974. My brother was born in 73, and I was born there in 76, Year of the Dragon. My mom was thinking I will find a better job, because part of why she didn't want to be in London is she's like being treated like a maid, and she's so much more than that. So they moved to Toronto. My mom looked for jobs in the medical field, and the only thing they said she was qualified to do was basically be a nurse that would change out bedpans. And she did that initially. You can imagine like being transplanted from like a tropical climate to London to then Toronto and like battling the snow and commuting for three hours to clean deadpans for a couple dollars an hour. That's basically what her life became. My dad got a job at IBM. He was really, really charming and super good looking and just had this way about him. He's the kind of person like at his funeral, I've met people who only met him once and traveled six or 12 hours to come to his funeral to pay their respects. He was just that kind of guy. He had this letter from this lady who would come into the cash-and-carry shop in London where they were living above, and she wrote this letter of recommendation for my dad. He used that to get a part-time job at IBM working the docks because he had no education, so the letter like literally said, you know, his school burned down and there are no <laughs> records. I don't know. It worked, and he gets this job. And my dad didn't even have a third-grade education, but he has a photographic memory, That proved to be really helpful because you had to, like, go find the boxes and then go log into the computer and say where they are because this is a massive warehouse. He always knew where everything was. So the job evolved to become full-time. And meanwhile, my mom was so fed up cleaning bedpans that she then started working on the line at IBM assembling motherboards, and they would meet for lunch in the cafeteria. 
They did that for a few years, and they saved up enough money to buy a little store in Toronto. I don't know what it is, but this is like part of my blood. Like, you don't work for someone else. All that time, they're biding time to get to a point where they can be self-sufficient. So they bought this little store, and for some reason, my parents just couldn't get over how much they loved Americans. Even Canada wasn't America. Their dream was to move to America. It took them from Toronto to Orlando. We drove down, and we met with this man. My brother and I played in this playground in Orlando, and the man had sold my parents this motel in Birmingham, Alabama, Fultondale, Alabama. A town less than 10,000 people. Yeah, very tiny, I think. In those towns, you know everybody. And we were like the Indian family that lived in the motel. I mean, this is a big jump, and they knew nothing about hotels. No. Nothing about Alabama, nothing about Birmingham. Um, nothing about the history of the South, and like nothing about so, any of that. I mean, this is just like a giant leap of faith. And by the way, this must have been all the money they had. Oh, yeah. And they thought they were buying a franchised location. What was the franchise? I think they thought they were buying a Ramada Inn, and they got there, and literally within the first week, they came and took the sign down. And then they had to make up a motel name. <laughs> and it was named? My nickname for my brother is Hemin. His real name is Rahim. But when I was a baby, I called him Hemin. And so it was Hemin Inc. The hotel's name was Haman Inn. <laughs> and they made it look like a Hampton Inn. <laughs> so if you think of like royal blue and this sort of like gold border and the same kind of shape, that was basically So they were good marketers, you know? <laughs> Paint the picture of that time. I mean got these incredibly entrepreneurial, risk-taking parents. They come to this small Alabama town, living in a motel, immigrants from another culture, another country. What did it feel like at that moment? When you just say it, it sounds sad and like, oh, you must have been so poor, stuck in a tiny little room. But it really wasn't like that. The South is actually really magical, as you know. Oh, yes, I do. I love Birmingham. When you ask Birmingham versus Toronto, I mean, hands down, the ham. Growing up was weird and fun and kind of quirky, and there were all these different characters. If I were to make a movie of what it's like to grow up in a motel, it would almost be this funny, mystical comedy, because it wasn't sad. I remember I had this duck named Peeper. It was a baby duck, and I convinced my parents to let me keep this baby duck. I didn't realize Peeper was not going to stay, like, yellow and fuzzy. There was one day the health inspector was literally inspecting the restaurant and Peeper walked into the restaurant while the health inspector was there. So you can imagine like we failed <laughs> and my mom and dad were so sad about it. But if you think about it, it's like hilarious. On the one hand, it was a unique and different experience than my peers were having. But on the other hand, I almost felt like I got to see the world in a different way. How did it shape you? You've been very successful in business also very entrepreneurial. How does that relate to that childhood? Dealing with unique challenges almost on a daily basis and seeing your parents at the dinner table, whatever conversation you're having was always about business. And it was always about a problem and then finding a solution. That was something that has become part of my DNA. I have a really hard time being around something that's broken because I want to fix it. You go from small town Alabama to Columbia University, Ivy League, New York City. That looks like a really big jump. What was behind that, and how did that jump feel? 
the number one goal was to be in New York City. And that meant I had to go to the school that was the best in New York City to justify that to my parents. You know, you're talking about dirt floor immigrants, but still Harvard is like the goal. And so I had to be in New York and then I had to go to Columbia because that meant that I was in an Ivy League school and that they would be proud. So you grew up with very determined, smart, hardworking, entrepreneurial parents and you decide to study art. Yeah. What did your parents feel about that and why that choice? In high school, I was a painter. I always thought that business robbed me from a life of deep interaction and connection with my family. And I was a little bit resentful of it because it was the focus, not me, not my brother. I didn't want to follow in their footsteps. I wanted to be expressive and creative. I wanted to do something meaningful. And to me, that was going to be painting pictures. Did you live the life of an artist after college? For a little bit until I realized that that wasn't why they went through all that. Let's just be honest. I'm not like a Picasso or even close. <laughs> I was, okay. Good ideas. Not great at the execution. Ultimately, I realized that I could do more for the world if I jumped into a place where I could help people. So in 1999, after college, you joined our friend Bill Koningsberg's Horizon Media as the first person in digital media? Yep. Then you're off to Glimmer Media, this time in content creation sales. And then you start your own media buying firm, Maven Marketing, all before returning to Columbia in 2002 to get your MBA. Why the MBA? It was a journey. So before Horizon, I was actually at a nonprofit teaching kids and teachers how to use the Internet. Because at that time, there was very little knowledge or access, if you can imagine what that was like. But seeing kids experience it for the first time was really special. That's what led me to Horizon, is I was working a nonprofit for a few dollars an hour, I think 12. And Horizon was an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm kind of smarter than this. I don't see myself being a meaningful contributor in a nonprofit. I was 22, but I'm thinking I should lead this thing. I get this opportunity to basically start the interactive division at this very well-known media buying agency. I jumped on it, and it was exciting because it was bringing this whole world of this new media to a whole group of advertisers who didn't know how to use the medium. And that was really cool. And I did that for a little while. And then I kind of realized, well, I don't really love some of the work, the product. Where do you take the value of the work that you've done? Who gets to benefit from it? And does it match your set of values? And ultimately, I felt like, let me go and try to do this on my own and see if I could market other people's products, but I was the one that was the beneficiary of heading my own shop. And then that was like, whoa, wait a second. Hey, Shazi, you can do this and you can make money doing it, but do you feel like super excited about selling subscriptions and creating cost per acquisition models? And so to answer your question in a long-winded way, I went to Columbia to get my MBA because I needed tools in my toolbox to take the desire to do something meaningful for myself and to go big with it and not be a mom and pop operation like I saw my parents struggle with for so long. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. 
I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Now let's get back to my conversation with Shazi Vishram. Let's jump to the big story. Let's come to Happy Baby, which, by the way, I have to disclose, I was one of your investors. 
So I was also an outside observer of your journey building that amazing business. As I understand it, it was a mom guilt conversation that gave you the initial idea? It was. I was catching up with a friend who had twins, and she just was berating herself the entire time about not being good enough. One of the things she mentioned was how she wasn't making all of their food fresh from all the produce at the farmer's market, and that's like how she always imagined she would be as a mom. I said, wait a second, you mean there's nothing fresh to feed your baby that's already made? And she said, no, there's these jars of baby food, and they're really gross, and I feel guilty every time I open one, but that's what we do. And it kind of just dawned on me. Our bodies have the ability to heal themselves, but we put in things like processed foods and medications and antibiotics and so many other things that get in the way of our ability to heal. And I thought, that's crazy. We're starting babies off with uber-processed food, and we don't scratch our head and wonder why literally 30% of children develop adult-onset diabetes if they eat the standard American diet, and why 16% of toddlers were obese and 33% of children were obese. Not overweight, but obese. Kids as young as 12 were getting put on Lipitor for life rather than being counseled to work on diet and exercise. I just saw it all in that one moment. Well, it starts in the beginning. What if we could change the very first few bites? What if we could change the very initial experience of food and health? Could it make a difference? And could I do it better than what there was? So that was the idea. That was it. Who helped you start it, inside and outside? So many people. For almost two years, I worked on the business plan. My mentor at Columbia, Cliff Shore, who's still a best friend of mine today, he's an advisor in my next company, Healthy Nest. He is just one of those people that helps you chart a way forward. He taught a program called The Greenhouse, which is actually how I became connected to you. And The Greenhouse is like an incubator for students at the school. And Cliff really helped me with the business plan and all of the ideas and access to people who could pave the way. I basically left Columbia with a business plan, but no funding. I started talking to the investment community. I didn't have any stripes. I was just this unknown girl without a rich uncle, using the network as best I could to be introduced to people like Andy, who then introduced me to someone like you. And I remember, actually, I don't know if you remember, but can I say the amount that you invested? Sure, go ahead. In Pilot, you invested 300 k and I'm pretty sure at one point I gave you a check back for like 10 or $12 million at the end of it. I think you did. Sometimes things take a while, and you were very patient, and it worked out. Thank you for your support. But Andy, who was on your team, said, well, we want to do this. We want to invest. Bob just hasn't given the final green light. He needs to see everything. I need to sit down with him. And I'm like, well, when are you going to sit down with him? And he's like, well, he's going to be in the office tomorrow, so I'm going to try to do it. And so I think I showed up at like 9 o'clock. I asked your assistant, is Bob in yet? And this is like in the old days. I I don't think I would ever do this now. And she's like, no, you know, he's going to be gone most of the day. He's coming later, and I don't know that he has time on his schedule to meet. And I was like, it's okay. I'll just wait. I don't know if you remember, but I sat there for like six hours. I probably didn't know you sat there for six hours. Well, I did, and I'm I'm glad I did. You finally come in, and Andy knew I was there, and he sat you down, and you met. And then afterwards, you gave us the green light. It was such 
a pivotal moment. We were literally on the verge of running out of money. And so that 300K bought me like six months. Let's talk about money. Very early on, you rejected a big investment from a venture capital group. Why'd you do that? Money was tight. What's the lesson in that? The lesson is go with your gut. And the easy way is not always the best way. I had gotten this interest from this group. They were very well-funded. They wined and dined me. And I was naive and totally broke. And you know what it feels like when you're broke and you're scared? Everything I would buy, like groceries or anything, was on an American Express that I wouldn't have money to pay for later. And I was thinking, well, I'll figure it out by the end of the month. It was like living that way. And so all of a sudden I had this offer for $500,000 as the seed investor. I was so excited about it. Basically on a handshake, I said yes. But then when I actually saw the terms from the get-go to lose control of the vision and the mission, which as you and I know, the mission never changed and the vision never changed, but the path to get there changes so much. You have to be adaptable. You have to be ready to pivot at any moment. If you don't have somebody behind you that sees that, or if you're not in the driver's seat and you can just make the turns as you choose, see the course and react, then you're hamstrung. And you can't do it by committee. No. People in an organization today think that all decisions need to be made by committee. Ultimately, this is not a democracy. I have a vision and we have a mission. I have to be the captain right now. You guys have to trust me. And usually you have the right team. Everyone does. We all trust. I had to walk away from that because it wasn't right. Even though I was so desperate, it was really hard to walk away from. In retrospect, that was the best thing that could have ever happened. So let's talk about product. You don't know anything about food. No. You know nothing about baby food. You've got an idea. Talk about how you take that idea, the intangible, and turn it into the tangible. How did you find out how to make the food, where to make the food, how to package it, how you sell stuff in the food business? Did you have all that when you were at Columbia and did that? as part of the business plan, or did that come from hands-on after you had really committed to this idea? I think it was both. When you're doing a business plan, you're basically making up how you hope things will be and what you think things will look like based on kind of BS projections in a way, because nobody knows. But at the same token, you can do enough research to put together a decent plan and then go live it and change it all the time. Part of the beginning was finding Everyone in my life that knew about food, knew about production, knew about all of the rigors of quality control that one would need to know about to have a microbiologist as an advisor, to have an entrepreneur like Seth Goldman from Honest Tea as an advisor. I found a really good partner in a woman named Jessica Rolf, who became my COO and was a wonderful partner who really dedicated herself to understanding QA and production of food. Along the way, I've just learned so much, but at the same token, I still would say I know very little about any one thing because there's such a specialty in each category. And it's about assembling all the smartest people in the world around the areas where you need help to get their expertise and to put it into developing something you're really proud of and feel good about and, you know, want to scream from the mountaintops. And that's where I think my ability comes in. I love to develop something, make something tangible. And because I know it's so good, I like to talk about it and share it because I don't think that's marketing. I think that's giving a gift to someone who needs it. You start out as frozen baby food. 
you get going, you get distribution, you get in Whole Food, you get in Babies or Us, and then you realize it's not going to get you there. How did you come to that conclusion? How did you realize it? And how did you admit to yourself that you weren't hitting the goal? Two and a half years in, against this business plan, we're making frozen baby food in this little ice cube trays. I remember. And they're beautiful. The food tasted amazing. It's like this palette of all these beautiful colors. The peas were so green and the carrots were just like neon orange and it was just so fresh and alive. It was like literally art, you know, to stand in a store at a Whole Foods and do a demo in the freezer aisle and to have people walk right past you and not even want to stop and try it. And you're standing there so eager with your cute little t-shirt on and your like smile, pictures on the back of the box. For two and a half years, you've been working on that and they don't want to try it. And then you realize, okay, wait a second. Am I talking to the wrong people? You're just standing there waiting for a mom to come in with a baby. She would be like, but where, where would I find, you know, I never come down this aisle. I only stopped because you were here. And so I'm realizing, wow, we have to create a whole new category of grocery called frozen baby food. That's an uphill battle. All the moms who are walking in the store with a baby right now are going straight to the baby food aisle. I mean, it took me two or three demos. I mean, really, literally, after two and a half years, there's like two weeks of a few data points, just real experiences that I didn't want to admit to myself because you're kind of in denial. You're thinking, oh, this is just a one-off. You're so committed. So committed. This is everything. I've risked everything for this. And then you realize, I got to change it all. We got to change it all. But you can't change it all, drop the happy baby frozen line. It's what everyone's invested in. It's what you invested in. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, we got to get in the baby food aisle stat. We've got to create something enlightened and differentiated and meaningful that still matches the mission. And that was? To create sustainable organic options for everybody and to have babies start from day one of eating with the healthiest start in life. That very first product that met those high standards was our Happy Bellies baby cereal with probiotics. It got you, what, two or three times the sales of the two years of the frozen? Yeah, so we went from 116 to 520 and then 520 to 2.1. And between 520 and 2.1 was the cereal. So then you jumped to the one that I think people really go, wow, this was genius. Your plastic squeeze pouch is a pureed baby food. That was really the game changer, wasn't it? 1,000%. And where did that idea come from? That clearly wasn't in your business plan back at Columbia. No. What was in the business plan was to create an alternative to the jar of baby food. And the original idea for that alternative was frozen. And what I realized is frozen is not the alternative to the jar. We created all these other wonderful products, but we still had yet to find the alternative to the jar. And that pouch was the alternative to the jar. In a heartbeat, the world changed. Back then, if you walked down the baby food aisle, there was always one or two broken glass jars of baby food, and it was 99.9% jars of baby food, and that's it. And now, walk down a baby food aisle, it is a sea of pouches. We're not the only ones, by far, but we were one of the very first. And the first pouch I ever saw was in Australia. There was one applesauce, and I thought, this is it. This is the alternative to the jar. We came home and started working on it right away. 
By the way, your sales then took another multiple jump based on this. But every great business usually has some external X factor, that unexpected catalyst for growth. At America Online in the 1990s, it was Nora Ephron's movie, You've Got Mail. At MTV, it was Michael Jackson's Thriller. For you, it was an American Express commercial. Tell us the story. 2009, I'm pregnant. We just launched our pouches. Someone sent me a link to a competition called Shine a Light, which was to shine a light on what would be America's most inspiring business. And I thought, you know, what the hell? The application had, how do you help the community? How are you a force for good? A number of things that I felt like we really lived up to. So it wasn't hard to fill out the application. Then we had to get 50 people to endorse it very quickly, which we did. And it's literally due at midnight, right almost at the stroke of midnight, I hit send on this thing. I hit send and I forgot about it. And a few weeks later, I'm in California. I'm getting ready to come to Boston to do a big trade show in the food world called Expo East. And I get a call from somebody at NBC Universal. I think she said out of more than 5,500 entries, you've been selected as one of the top three most inspiring businesses in the country. Where are you tomorrow? Because we need to film a commercial that needs to air next week. And I said, well, I'm in Boston tomorrow. I'm in California right now. I'm pregnant. Let's do it. And so we filmed this commercial. Where? At a little health food store in Boston. So I walk past this cool mural that says Eat Local. And I go into the store and really like bright and excited talking about how proud I am of our product standing in front of the produce aisle. It was what I thought was going to be the biggest moment of our entire life. And then we lost the competition. So we came in second, which was okay but they played that commercial before The Office. They played it on TV so much. Nine months later, I get another call, and it's from someone at Amex. And they say, we saw your Shine a Light commercial. We're doing a new campaign called Business is Booming, and we want to show people how important small businesses in America. We'd like to highlight your story with an online video. Can we come film you for a few days? Yeah, of course. I just had a baby. Let's make it happen. And this time, we were able to really showcase the story of Happy Baby. We're in New York, in our office. We had this little baby food truck that we'd drive around the city. We parked it in front of the Natural History Museum. They filmed this spot, and I didn't get to see it. I thought we would talk about how we would roll it out online. And then a couple months later, I took my parents to Africa, and I wanted my dad to see what life was like in Africa without dirt floors because I was winning an award in Cape Town. And so I take my mom and dad and my husband and my little baby son to Africa. We go to Cape Town and we stay in these beautiful places. And then we went on this incredible safari. And my dad had a heart attack in the middle of the bush. <laughs> and um, we didn't know he had a heart attack. We just thought he was really sick. We were on a plane from Johannesburg back to New York, but it stopped in Abu Dhabi. And on the plane, he almost died. So they wheeled him off in a gurney. And we went straight to a hospital. They were using the, you know, the defibrillator. Yeah, the defibrillator to like bring him back to life. And by the way, he made it. Great news. The best news. Yeah, yeah, he made it. So they saved his life. And we were stuck there for like three weeks. Months before we left, we had started the process of realizing the pouches are taking off. We need to raise a big round. This is not something I can do with individual investors. And I started talking to a number of different funds. So I was only going to be gone for eight or 10 days. But I ended up being on for almost four weeks. And while I'm in Abu Dhabi, 
the first few pouches rolled into Target on shelf, within the first two weeks, they were in the top items in all of Baby, in all of Target, in two weeks. It was like unheard of. People were buying them like crazy. I'm thinking, oh my God, we need money so badly we're about to drown. Drown in demand because we had to prepay for everything we had nothing. And I'm like in Abu Dhabi in this hotel near a hospital with a baby boy. And I was worried about my dad and I was worried about the business. And then I get an email from American Express saying, the video we shot is actually not for online. Your story has turned out so well. We're going to put about $50 million behind this commercial. They sent a clip of what it looked like, and I sent it to all of you guys. I think we raised, I want to say it was $8 million in like two or three weeks. American Express ended up coming through, and that was like the equivalent of what I would consider an Oprah moment. Wow. So piece after piece fell in place after some big worries and pivots in the beginning. And in 2013, you sold 92% of the company. Why did you come to that decision? Well, a curveball was thrown my way. In April of 2012, my son Zane was diagnosed with autism. This is a baby boy. He was right there with you, super connected. Go watch the commercial. He's in it. And then all of a sudden started losing milestones and losing the ability to communicate and just went into this little bubble. It's not like he was born this way. I knew him, and I knew something was going on, and I couldn't find the answers, and I was terrified. I was also terrified that this business that had really become something big, we still didn't have any money. If you ask me what my bank balance was, it might have been like $14,000, and I would have been happy that I had that much money in the bank because it used to be like $700. I literally spent my life savings on that trip to Africa. I sold the business because I thought that I needed to have access to capital to save my kid. And in so doing, the irony is that I lost control of that baby. But I had to do it for all the right reasons. Sounds like the right reasons. Well, you did well financially. It was a great return for every investor. Yep. Great return for you. And in 2017, you stepped down as CEO. How was that feeling of stepping away from the company? I mean, it's bittersweet. It was actually January of 2018. And I left after we had the data that we were the number one organic baby food company in the country and that we were the number two baby brand in the entire country. And in a way, that's a good time to walk away because at some point you want to keep learning and challenging yourself too. I had bigger and more important things to do While I had focused for so many years on taking chemicals and pesticides out of our children's body and creating a brand that allowed everybody to have access, my own personal experience showed me that I needed to do more. And it started with my son, and then I realized I had to do something else, like I had unfinished business. So while it was bittersweet, it was almost like seeing your child graduate from high school and kind of get accepted into Harvard and feel like they're in a good place. And it doesn't have to be Harvard. It could be anywhere they wanted to go. I felt like the business is in good hands. I've done my duty. And it's time to move on. It's always going to be my baby. And I'm always going to be so proud of everything that we've done and accomplished. I'm still the chair mom of the board. So I'm still connected to some degree. 
let's do some advice. If you could give some advice to your 18-year-old self, what would it be? The first thing I would say is you are so freaking resilient and smart and strong that no matter what comes your way, you're going to figure it out. So stop second-guessing yourself because it's a waste of time. Focus your time on making things because you're good at it. So for people thinking about leaving the corporate world to start their own business, what insights or advice would you have for them? If you're going to leave and it puts you at a financial risk, weigh your risks, make sure that your assumptions are tested. The biggest failure is the failure to try. But that doesn't mean to do it without intelligence and analytics and a lot of research before you make the big jump. For people whose business is stalled, like yours was with the frozen baby food, what advice do you have for them? My advice to anybody who's struggling is to take a minute, try to de-stress so that your brain is working, because your brain works a lot better when you're not operating out of fear, and call 10 of the smartest people you know, and just have conversations. Because when you care so much about something, if there is a way to attack the challenge, I think you will find a creative solution. From rooms 123 and 125 to where you are today and that incredible journey you've been on, you ever sit back and reflect and say, how on earth did that happen? Every time I drive through the gate at my house, I think, I can't believe I live here. I'm very grateful. I literally think that anything is possible in this life. I think about my mom and dad. I think about how nice it would be if my dad could see my house right now. We end each episode with a shout-out. This is math and magic, after all, to the mathematicians and the magicians. Who's the person you want to give the shout-out to as the best of those mathematicians, the person who sees the world through the numbers? I read a book called Small Data. I would give a huge shout-out to the author of that book. It's about taking small insights and recognizing how the world works. And then you can use big data to confirm those insights. Who's the most creative? The magician. I would say Malcolm Gladwell. One of the greats. Shazi, this is an amazing story, amazing journey you've been on, and it's still going. Congratulations. Thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor and so much fun to see you again after all these years. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Shazi. One, match your values to the value of your work. Shazi created a company that matched her core beliefs. Not only was it fulfilling, it was a business success too. Two, trust your gut. When Shazi turned down an investment offer because the terms didn't feel right, she kept control of her company and ultimately led it down a more profitable path. Three, identify problems and find solutions. After many years of developing the idea for frozen baby food, Shazi learned very quickly through live demos that she needed a different product to reach the right people. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. 
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.